Peace, peace, and welcome. We're glad you're here. This is the Cook on Monday Morning Podcast. I am here with the homie, entrepreneur, the jack of all trades, the good brother, Dan Runcy. Thanks for having me, man. Good morning. Great to be here. Yeah. Good morning. Good morning. How you been? (laughs) I'm good, man. I'm good. You look all fresh and bright. (laughs) (laughs) It's that glow. Yeah, it's that that glow. glow. We got that soul glow. (laughs) Um, At Cook on Monday morning, we believe that if you own Monday morning, you can own the week. If you own the week, you can own the year. And if you change your year, you can change your life. So uh, Dan is the founder of a really exciting news publication called Trapital. Uh, we met through uh, Mutual Friends several years ago, and I'm excited to get into what Trapital is, the the what he's trying to achieve through building this um, news outlet and uh, how he got to this place. So thanks for coming, man. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you, so what is Trapital? So Trapital is a media company that breaks down and elevates the hip hop culture. I started this for a few reasons. I recognized that there was a void in how the business principles and lessons that we could learn from hip hop artists and the companies that they run, there wasn't as much discussion about them. A lot of the talk was more about who's dating who, or maybe we would get an occasional Wall Street Journal article or an occasional Harvard Business School case study, But this business was just as much of a business that had deep strategic discussions and implications as tech or as finance and all those other things. And with my experience, both working in several different industries and then my own work as a freelance writer covering this space, writing about the business of culture, the business of hip hop, I didn't feel like there was a set place that was giving this credence. And I noticed that the times when it was done well, people did care and people resonated both inside these industries and outside of it too. There was a Harvard Business School case study a few years back on Beyonce's surprise album that she dropped. She dropped the album the end of 2013. HBS did their case study 2014 and it blew up. And a few months after that, I had started doing some freelance writing on the side, just putting my name out there was something that started purely as a hobby. But I always kept that in mind as understanding that there was value in the culture. Hip hop was starting to rise in both the business people and the people outside could get something with it. And as I started to see how media trends were developing, people were starting to own spaces, have the ability to create niche publications and seeing the value in something like that, I saw what was there, and even with my own writing, I didn't necessarily feel like there was a home, even as I was doing stuff for Wired or Complex in those places. And I said, you know what, now is good a time as ever to see where this goes. So I started it on the side, purely on the side of what I was doing with my job. It was like a several month pilot and things picked up traction pretty quickly and in a good way. And then that's when I started to just put more and more effort into it. And I've been doing it full time for a little over a year now. Mm, mm, yeah. So you made the jump to leave your full time job to to run this media company full time. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's important too to kind of um, tease out uh, what this is, what Trapital is and, and, and what it isn't. Like so um, the name Trapital. Right. Let's just start there. Right. What's, what's the inspiration behind the name? So Behind the name Trapital, I knew that this was going to be the business of hip hop. And I wanted to have a name that captured that in a strong way. And I had several names that I was going through. I'd send a few friends, hey, what do you think about this? And rap, of course, trap is a form of rap, more specifically in the South with the style and the types of beats and the sounds that got popular. But then there was the capital aspect of it. And this is what it was. So I tested the name out. I said, okay, well, what if we replace the capital with trap, trapital? And I tested that out. I had a few other names and I'm honestly too embarrassed to say (laughs) because they sound wild now in comparison. And then everyone was like, no, go with that. File that trademark right now. Mm -hmm. Do it. And and, and that's why I did it. I felt like it was a name that people would remember. And I thought that that was something that was important as I was trying to build this out. It was the ethos of what this meant. And 
the people that recognized it and valued it would get it immediately. Like, oh yes, that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's definitely this space for like coverage of business, right? That like, I think a large portion of like the Bloomberg media company is focused on business and you have CNBC, you have the San Francisco Business Times, you have the Wall Street Journal, and there is this other space around how hip hop culture is, um, is, you know, captured through like vibe or complex, but this is sort of like a, it, would you say it's a merge of the two? Or would you say this is more so aligned with a, a, a common business publication, but specifically focused on the hip hop industry? Right. I, I think, I think it's a few things because I know that there are places that have written about the business of X thing related to culture, but I wanted to make sure that Trapital was both relatable in a way where this is someone that is talking about this, that grew up in understanding and listening to this music and respected it well before I even saw a business opportunity there. So making sure that that comes through with the same level of rigor that a Wall Street Journal or a Harvard Business School or any of, or even the New York Times when they've done good write-ups, any of these places have done it. So thinking about the mix of those puts me into that industry trade publication aspect, but making sure that it has the cultural relevance and the references that I'll put in there, make sure that it can extend its reach. And I think it does it for a few, I do that for a few reasons. One, it addresses the readability and the interest that people have, because I still do think that sometimes trade publications, when they have an opportunity to be relatable, don't always do so because their thought is that I am writing to an executive team at ESPN, or I'm writing to an executive team at Rock Nation or wherever it is. But at the end of the day, we have to realize you're still people mm -hmm. and they are, they themselves are fans of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So when we think about talking as people and you are a company, how can you do that in a relatable way? So that's where, when I often hear the trade publication uh, classification, I make sure that we realize that, no, this is a element of interest for the consumer. And I think it does a few things that also in addresses that these are people regardless of whether they're a CEO or not, but it also improves the reach of Trapital as well, because I think the more people that read it and realize that they can get several things out of it, that then makes sure that other people can get it too, so that it can get in the hands of another executive or someone else, because someone that's a consumer may see it as well. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's a little bit like a, um, it's a little bit like a Pixar strategy and what they've done with movies, how they've been intentional with most of them to make sure that both adults and children can get something out of this because it helps extend the reach. And that's why they all make close to a billion dollars now. So similarly, how do I write something that is just as relatable to both the business consumer and the um, the social consumer that just wants to learn about this for entertainment? Mm, mm, okay, interesting. Is And and you also made an intentional effort about um, remaining independent. Mm -hmm. And so explain what like independence means and, and how you're accomplishing that with your publication. So one of the main purposes for me was to have a niche and to be the main person behind that niche, but also not necessarily be working for another broader company with this. And I think it does a few things. I think that there's a lot of ownership interest and ties with a lot of the media publications that are out there specifically covering hip hop or entertainment. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think the investment and a lot of those things that allowed them to do great work, but it's not exactly an unbiased opinion when we think about it, when so-and-so is owned by this publication, right? And I think being able to stay independent gives me a bit of that willingness to say the things and not necessarily feel like I have to sugarcoat what I want to say because I may not want to be, I'm because I'm risking not getting invited to this party, right? Or I may not get the invite to this. That's not necessarily what this is. This is something that is being supported by the audience that values it. And then it goes a bit more into the business model, which is a subscription-based model. And I think the way that the media landscape is built now, I think there are really two main strategies that the successful places go. You either go far and wide and maximize the ability to 
get as many eyeballs and views as possible? And what's the best way to get eyeballs and views or monetize eyeballs and views in this way? It's advertising. So being able to leverage that as your medium, and that's why I think that a lot of the most successful entities out there from digital media are doing that very thing. Or it's to the other side where you're focused on a particular niche. You know that this may not necessarily appeal to everyone, but the people that are interested in it, there's a select few that will really value it. So what are the types of products and services that you can offer to them? And that's where subscriptions in the form of payments and membership makes more sense for the work that I'm doing. So that's the mindset behind that. And I do think that it's created this barbell effect where it's your there's success at one end, there's success at the other end, but I think the folks in the middle are the ones that can often be challenged or have issues when they're trying to monetize in a play in a industry that is constantly changing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, so you're, you're a journalist and a businessman. Essentially, yeah, because I think with both this is both owner, operator, and the person that is making most of the the content. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, as I've been able to grow, I've been able to leverage different resources and tools to be able to buy myself more time or things such as editing or marketing, reaching out to different freelancers to help with those things. But no, I do think that there is value if you're smart about how you manage your time to be able to be both the content creator and the primary operator of the business when you have a logical thought on how you want to be able to monetize, but also knowing that this is a way to keep things low cost. And if you keep things low cost, having a small fraction of the pie that a broad media entity might have can work out very well and sustainable for you when your expenses aren't that high. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to get a little into how you grew up. And I want to come back to uh, Trapital, yeah, because um, I do think you have an interesting story. Like you, you've had sort of some like very formal. Uh, you've had some formal education from some of these institutions, mm-hmm. but um, where did where did you initially grow up? So I grew up in um, East Hartford, Connecticut. Okay, yeah, and so right outside of Hartford. And what is East Hartford like? This is paint a picture of East Hartford, like what the community is like. So East Hartford's community is interesting. There's there's always this running joke growing up that Connecticut is one of these towns that, or not one of these towns, Connecticut is one of these states where you literally can have the highest forms of wealth that is less than an hour away and some of the highest forms of poverty and both of the sides literally have no idea what life is like. Mm-hmm. for the other. And I think that encapsulates the state pretty much. And I think the areas that end up having most of the um, unfortunate areas are the biggest cities, which is Hartford, Bridgeport, and New Haven. East Hartford's on the outside of that. So well, to some extent, because I think it's a, it's a mix of the two, where even in our high school, there were a few people in the high school, public high school I went to, East Hartford High, that were really well off, but there were many people that weren't. And if I'm thinking about things from a demographic perspective, um, I want to say that our high school was most likely around maybe 40% white, 35% black, and then um, at least another 30 um, Latino. And then it was a mix of everyone else mm-hmm. after that. Mm-hmm. So it was very interesting, even just driving around town and you could see like grand wealth disparities and gaps. So in many ways, I've often talked with several of my friends. I'm fortunate to be able to grow up somewhere like that, where I felt like there were literally all sorts of people that we could be able to connect with and be able to have friendships with. But I will say, as I continued on in life after high school, the places that I went to after didn't necessarily reflect that in that same way. Mm. And that is something that I think I've definitely been cognizant of uh, over time. But yeah, that's the one thing that I look back on the most about growing up there versus places I've been since then. Mm-hmm. And what about what about home life? What was the, are you are you only child? Do you have mom yes. and dad? Like, what so, are, what are your mom? What are your parents like? Yeah, so um, grew up with both parents. I have an older brother who's about um, who's ten years older than I am, and all of them were born in Jamaica. So, are you Jamaican? I'm, I'm Jamaican, man. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. 
Oh, really? Yeah. We never talked about this? No. Wow. I, that's that's crazy we never talked about this. Yeah. But yeah, so. It all makes sense now. <laughs> now it all makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Everything falls in line. Yeah, it's like, yeah, okay, yeah. that's why you are that way. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, so my. I, my, love, I love Jamaica. Oh, you do? And Jamaicans. No, nice. Thank we, you. We continue. Thank you. <laughs> the glow makes sense now. The glow <laughs> that I was talking about before? Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Or the people having like 15 jobs. That all makes nah, sense. Well, no, yeah. Well, continue. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so yeah, my mom came up in the eighties. My dad came up with his family in the seventies. And then my brother came up, um, right around the time that I was born, but yeah, they had moved to Hartford, the area specifically because Hartford is one of the biggest areas outside of Brooklyn for Jamaicans in the United States. And we had had some family friends there and were there. And I think growing up for us, it was, it was interesting because I think that both of my parents grew up without much wealth at all in Jamaica, both grew up poor to be frank, and then came here and were able to establish lives for themselves. Because as I joked around before, but I think it is true, they were willing to have multiple jobs and put their head down and in many ways do their best to try to both um, assimilate into what made sense for growing up in this culture, but also staying true to the roots of themselves. And I think I definitely like respect that and admired a lot of that and saw a lot of that growing up. And even things that I didn't realize were Jamaican traits just became part of who I was being around them, being around my grandmother, who um, was my mom's mother, who had lived with us until I was seven and then moved about a mile away from us to have her own place. And then my aunts and her kids um, came afterwards. So there was always a bit of this influence there. So it was always fun to be around them. And I think it was also interesting seeing things from my older brother's perspective, because he moved up here um, when he was nine years old, like I said, right around the time that I was born and was in many ways looking up to what he had done and thinking about, okay, we didn't overlap in friends because he was too much older, but thinking about like the types of people we hung out with, the sports that we played. So it was an interesting time to go through to go through a lot of that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so what what are some of the major lessons that you that you would say your family um like instilled in you when you were young? What, what type of example did they set? Mm. For you? you talked a little about having multiple jobs, but right. you know, how did that translate into like a message about mm -hmm. who you were and what you were supposed to do? Yeah, I think that that reinforced several things about um just knowing that the work that you put in is what you'll get out of it and things won't necessarily come easy. I mean, I'd seen both of them work hard and knowing that sometimes the results would come, but other times, you know, you have to work and work to be able to get to um, where you want things to be. And I think that at least for most people, and I could definitely say this for me, those things don't necessarily hit you until you're ready to embrace them. And I remember growing up, there was times when some classes in school, especially like in middle school leading up, things came relatively easy. But then I, there was a transition to going into okay, honors and AP classes, and it wasn't necessarily that way. Mm -hmm. And logic would think that, okay, well, now it's time to level up and work harder. But I didn't necessarily do that. Mm -hmm. Like I was still putting in the same effort before, but then the grades were dipping. And even things like sports as well, like not necessarily putting as much effort as I probably could have looking back. And it wasn't until going to college and having initially gotten a scholarship to go to college, but then not having my grades where I felt like they should have been, or not even where I thought they should have been, where the school thought they should have been, because I had lost the scholarship that I had to maintain the 3.0 GPA that I needed to keep that. And I'd written this persuasive essay to try to get it back, and that wasn't working out. And that's when it kind of hit me that, okay, this is the first time that you've literally had a true setback. I mean, there was minor things like, yeah, I may have not gotten into the dream school I thought that may have necessarily would have happened, but I was still you know, happy at the time with how it turned out. But that was the first time where it was like, wow, this is going to have a financial impact on you. So I think at those points when you hit reality, the lessons that were reinforced were reminders of, yeah, you know, your parents had that and even your brother had that type of mentality because they knew what it was like. And in many ways, you grew up a little bit more fortunate than them, but never necessarily had to 
work as hard for the things you wanted to. And it wasn't until that point when you were on your own to some extent, being a freshman in college, that I was like, okay, now it's time to turn things around and realize that you have to work much harder to get what you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important too in that story to 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 call out that um, you took responsibility for the setback. Like you're mm-hmm. not, you didn't blame somebody else. You blamed your own effort, and that sense of responsibility, I think, really does carry uh, carry people throughout life. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did you get a uh, Did you get an athletic scholarship or an academic scholarship? Academic. Okay. And yeah. what what sports did you play in high school? So in high school, I did track. Okay, in track. Okay. Yeah. And um, were you involved in like several clubs or was it just school mm-hmm. and track? Or? Yeah, and no, I was involved in several clubs. Like I was involved in the high school's student council. Um, that was probably the biggest one. And there were other things related to student council that I ended up having a hand in. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, and where did you do your undergrad? Uh, I went to Quinnipiac University. Quinnipiac. Yeah. Okay. And where is that? Um, it's in Connecticut. It's right outside of New Haven. It's a town called Hamden. Hamden. Yeah. And and so um, what was the transition like from your high school to Quinnipiac? Quinnipiac. Quinnipiac. It was interesting. It was, it was one of, if this makes sense, it was, it was a culture shock, but not necessarily, it didn't strike me in ways until I was like, weeks in and then even afterward it was like oh wow like this is different mm-hmm. like you'll probably like this is going to be a funny story but i felt like i knew what it was like to be around you know people white people that had a little bit more money and like how they carry themselves being in honors and ap classes at school because as i mentioned my high school is pretty diverse but unfortunately the honors and ap classes ended up being you know like 70, 80, 90% like white and Asian students. So the few of us that were black or Latino definitely felt a bit out, um, you know, outnumbered there, but we felt like we knew who the classmates were, right? Like they lived in the town with us, we could relate. Going to college, it was like a different, going to college there was completely different. I mean, there was people on my own dorm room, like months after that was like, hey, I'm not gonna be honest. The first time I met you, I was like scared out of my mind. Mm-hmm. And hearing that had surprised me because I didn't necessarily think of myself as a uh, intimidating person in that type of way in in any sense, or people would ask me questions that just showed a lack of like cultural understanding and sensitivity. And I'm just like, wait, what, really? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. and so stuff like that, I, and, you know, a little bit of stuff like, oh, okay, you're this six foot two tall guy. Like, are you on the basketball team and stuff mm-hmm. like that? So a lot of the stereotyping. So a lot of that, I was like, wow, mm-hmm. we're really here. Like mm-hmm. I never had to answer any of those types of questions when I was in high school, but now we're here. So in some way, so I do think that that was a bit like, wow, no, mm-hmm. here we are. Yeah, I had a similar experience um, transitioning in the college and, uh, yeah, it's it's all yeah yeah. I mean, we can I guess do a lot about that. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I will I will say that the 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 friends that I did make there and a handful of them I'm still really good friends with. We're still in a text message chain today. I think we all clicked, but I think in many ways, like they also felt that a lot of the people at like Quinnipiac were a certain type of person, and they themselves necessarily didn't feel like they were that type of person either. So maybe that's why we were able to be friends in that way. But yeah, no, that that was definitely, it was like, wow, I didn't know this is how people operated. People that grew up in the same state that I did, just mm-hmm. to bring things full circle to mm-hmm. what I was mentioning at the beginning of this, this conversation. And, and I think that there's a lot of like, as you talk to people, you hear back and forth about that, right? Whether or not does it make sense, and, and and maybe you felt some of this too, does it make sense to be in that type of environment so that you know what it's like, or does it make sense to be somewhere you may feel a bit more comfortable, like at an HBCU or something like that? Like, that's been an age-old discussion, and I think that will always be there, but that is that definitely made me think about that and it's something i've definitely thought about as well when people ask me about college i've talked to other people about why they chose a particular school mm-hmm. and so on yeah yeah well uh, as you as you were mentioning that too there was also i mean like there is there we everyone comes into college with a certain level of like life ignorance mm-hmm. and um 
you're forced to if you if you go away to school uh you know 33 of americans have college degrees right like mm-hmm. a lot of americans aren't really getting this full college experience so they're not right. really like finishing um so when you go into college like at least for me you know i grew up in a in a house where like my family had like a black history month dinner mm-hmm. right and uh i grew up in black churches we we all i knew a certain level uh of like uh, black history and like there was a certain level of black consciousness mm-hmm. but it completely elevated when i got to school and i went to a majority white school mm-hmm. and i had like courses focused particularly on black people so you know i had never read du bois until college or right. frederick Douglass, or um i, I had never heard of stokely Car- carmichael mm-hmm. or nat turner right like all throughout my public school education and so i was brought into a new level of black consciousness, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that like inspired and challenged me, right? And there are a lot of um, just ignorant people, period, from sheltered backgrounds who are white that like are forced to come into interactions with black people, and mm-hmm. and they you know they are they're ignorant and afraid, and right, and um, they they need an opportunity to grow. And it's really their responsibility for that growth. Mm-hmm. But like these interactions kind of force that conversation, you know? Right, right. And, and so hopefully people come to a better place where uh, they they can raise their awareness and consciousness. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's like one of these unfortunate things where like we are the receivers of this uh, unfair or like discriminatory treatment because of somebody else being sheltered, you know? Right, right. And so, so like, I'm glad you found your people. <laughs> um, I'm glad that like you you had a, a, a well-structured home that like valued work ethic and and uh, you went through school and where'd you go to grad school? Uh, so I went to University of Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. So you're my second Michigan guest. Nice. Uh, do you know Do you know Randy Saraguchi? I don't know if you know him. I don't think so. Yeah, okay. but he he did undergrad in Michigan, and he um he went to law school at uh in at in DC at American. Okay, but cool. you did your you, you did your uh, MBA. Yeah, I did my MBA. Okay. Yeah, so I went to business school in Michigan, and I think similarly to when you're talking about the cultural aspect, Michigan was I think hit at an interesting time too, because as you mentioned, you had a lot of your I guess your own like cultural like elevation in college. I think for me, a lot of that came even after college, because I think both to my, um, just to think where my head was at, even though like I knew that I had people I felt comfortable with. And obviously I met my, you know, some good friends, met my now wife at Quinnipiac as well. Um, I wasn't particularly in a mindset where I was ready to like fully embrace a lot of that beyond, you know, knowing who I was before. But um, I think working and um so i worked for travelers which is insurance company i think a lot of the mentors and people i met there we ironically enough that's where a lot of that trajectory ended up coming for me in terms of that and then going to michigan which did have you know although similarly it is a um a predominantly white institution there was a concerted and stronger diversity efforts than I think I had ever seen at the undergraduate level. So a lot of the people that came with us through the same recruiting programs and that stuff were able to develop a a strong bond and then being able to both interact with each other there and then um, learning a bit more about what it's like in Michigan and people from all over the world at this point. I think that was an interesting experience. And of course, I think from a more practical perspective, it was good for me to be able to make the career transitions that I had wanted to and use that to take my next step to the um, to go to the next level in, in my career. And you didn't go straight in to Michigan. Did you work between? I worked in between. Yeah. So I worked for an insurance company in Hartford. Yeah. Yeah. The travelers. Yeah. The tra- the travelers. How long were you there before? Uh, I was there for three years. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so what, why did you decide to go to get an MBA? Um, it was on the back of my mind for a while, but it's funny, the, the thought about it changed. I initially thought I was going to do like a five-year program at undergrad, but then talking to a few mentors, they were like, no, no, you should go somewhere different. And cause that's where you could really level up or do X, Y, Z. And I was like, oh, why would I do something different? I was still caught in this mindset, but then they were the ones that explained why 
that's important. And I said, okay, well, I'll work for a few years and then see how it goes. But then when you started working for a few years, you, I, I think I had this internal decision where um, I took my GMAT test early on and said, okay, I have an idea what work is like here and things may go well, like things may continue to uh, progress, but the score lasts for five years. I feel confident if I'm going to go at all, it probably would be in the next five years. So let's just have the score. I have the have the great set. But then after that, I think I started to realize both some of the pros and cons of the insurance industry. The pro is that there were some very smart people that I worked with. I still feel like that is one of the smartest talent groups that I've been a part of. But insurance, especially in places like Hartford and elsewhere, they pay people quite well. And I think it's one of those things where it can easily become a bit of a trap, if you will, and it can be harder to adjust that lifestyle. Like most of the people I knew, like by the time that they were, uh, you know, just entering the late 20s, like 27, 26, 27, some of them, it was like house, marriage, kids, multiple mm -hmm. of them, mm -hmm. because that's what the lifestyle had. And I think I paused and I think my, um, you know, then girlfriend, now wife at the time, were just kind of like, yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily where we're at either. So I said, uh, you know what? I think this is the time to switch because although we can, although from a salary and career perspective, maybe able to go high, I think it quarters you into that financial services and insurance industry. And I didn't necessarily think that that was the determined future, although things could have went well. So I said, no, now's a better time than ever to make that transition. So that's what led me to make the transition. Then when I did, I think it was still on paper a little bit earlier than most people would have. I think the average person goes into business school after about five or six years of experience. So I was a bit on the uh, younger side at three. And I think several people that were good mentors that I trusted were like, no, wait, wait, like you can go get another job if you want to do that. But I was like, you know what? I don't know where my life will be in a couple of years. When you're feeling something, just go for it. And things ended up working out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, so how did you end up in San Francisco? So it's funny. I ended up in San Francisco. I, ironically, it was a little bit by chance because I, had applied to this program called Education Pioneers, which is this fellowship program for people that either have management experience or education experience themselves and want to wanted to do more work in a type of education management type role. And it was one of the things that I was considering to do afterward, because I was thinking long term, I was like, oh, you know, this may be of interest at some point, And I've always been interested in this in this type of program. So I, I applied and I had, I'd gotten a internship offer from the place I interned the, in, in the summer before, but I ended up declining that and I wanted to explore the horizons. And I said, you know what? I don't have a job lined up, but this is a 10 week program. Let's see where things go. And you have to rank the cities where you could go. And at that point I was very much fixated like, oh yeah, I want to go to New York. I've always wanted to live in New York. It was probably the city that I spent the most time in, in those years where I was working at Travelers, visiting friends and stuff. And I said, I wanted that experience. And I think my, um, my um, wife was um, interested in it as well. So I put New York one, I put San Francisco second because I didn't come out here since I was in high school. My parents went on a vacation and I tagged along with them for a few days. And I was like, okay, you know, this tech thing is starting to gain some interest out there. And there is some education management and tech things going on. Maybe I'll just put that as two. Let's see what happens. And I forget where I put afterward. Got the call. They didn't get the placement in New York, but they were able to get the placement in San Francisco. And I said, all right, you know, it's 10 weeks. I know it's an expensive place to live, but let's just see how it goes. Mm -hmm. Came for 10 weeks. After like four or five weeks, I was like, okay, no, this is it. Because even if it didn't end up being with the job that I got placed with through education pioneers, I knew that there was still a ton of opportunity out here and I liked the energy and the vibe. And I did feel a confidence in my ability to make things work, although the student loan payments were going to start kicking in in a few months and I didn't have as much money to my name still just with 
how much money that I had spent from what I had saved up from two years of not working. But I said, no, I feel confident things are going to work out here. And eventually they they did. Mm. But yeah, that's what brought me to San Francisco. Mm. How would you describe the energy and the vibe? The energy and the vibe out here is, I think there's a few aspects of it. I think from a, from a business perspective, it excited me because I think people were thinking and trying to create and do things and having the type of conversations that didn't happen in other places that I was in. Had spent time in Atlanta, had spent time in Hartford, obviously growing up, and had spent a good amount of time in Detroit when I was in Michigan going back and forth. And the 10 weeks out here surprised me and got me more interested than anywhere else. People it was the things that you often heard about and jokes like, oh, you know, you never know there could be a pitch going on next when you're in a coffee shop, someone next to you trying to make something happen. I started to see that happening, started to do talks with people that I felt like I could relate with that were doing things. Like a guy from my high school was was backed by Y Combinator and was building a company out here and him and I had connected um, about a month or two after I came. Like I was starting to see that and I didn't necessarily see that elsewhere. And that type of energy and vibe is what I think attracted me. We I saw a little bit about it in Detroit, but um, I think both my, uh, uh, well, then girlfriend, now wife and I wanted to uh, move away from the cold for a bit. So, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think just the opportunity made a little bit more. So from a business perspective, I got that. Um, but then I think that there were some other things that, you know, we were just frankly cognizant of as well. I first moved out here, I had a sub, I had a sublight in the outer Richmond and was starting to explore different neighborhoods. And I just saw how things were from both the um, wealth gap and income and a lot of the housing issues and stuff. And I definitely thought about, okay, what's my place here if I'm moving here? Because of course I felt like I had several aspects of this, both understanding what it was like for my parents when they moved somewhere, but understand what it's like for me now is this like tech or tech adjacent person moving here. And although I may not fit the stereotypical image because I'm not a white or Asian man in tech, I'm still someone that coming here and may or may not be displacing someone that otherwise would have been here. So what is my role in that? What are the ways that I can try to both either give back or feel like I'm integrating myself into the communities wherever I do live. So that was something that I think I've thought about much more intentionally than anywhere else I've really lived before. Mm-hmm. And when you moved here, you felt a responsibility to play a positive role in that. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Even even on the smaller scales of things, whether it's attending certain events or trying to um support local patrons. Those are the things I think I've been most interested in trying to build and support, getting to know many of the people that work in public office here. And not, I mean, not even from my own like ambitions or thoughts, but just like understanding what really happens and then using that to inform my own voting or who I then talk to in social settings that they feel like I am there for the connection because they know I know you or I know other people in the, 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 the mayor's office. And although Honestly, I've not done nearly as much of that as you're trying to build a company that ends up taking up a majority of my life for the past year or so. It's been something that's been in the back of my mind, and I think I've definitely enjoyed the, to be frank, enjoyed the challenge I think comes with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it definitely sounds like you have an interest in social impact Mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, maybe the interest in pursuing education pioneers is connected to that, right? Right. And so, and the the company that you worked for, I think well, how we met, it was very much focused on that, very right. much focused on like how to expand, um, how to make an impact in a social way. Like talk a little bit about where, if, mm-hmm. where you were, if you're comfortable. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So when we first met, I was working for Education Superhighway, which is a nonprofit organization that's focused on bringing broadband connectivity to schools across the country. And when I initially started, it was, I want to say a year and a half or two years after the company started. And it was an exciting time to be there. It was right around like 20 or so employees. And of course, this is the exact opposite of working for a Dow 30 company Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. Travelers. And being able to truly 
build the plane as you're trying to fly it. Of course, there's challenges and there's growing pains with that, but I think you learn a lot through there. And I'm definitely fortunate for a lot of the lessons learned. I think additionally, both some of the hardest working and most intriguing minds that I've been able to work with. And I think I've been able to give me opportunities that I probably wouldn't have otherwise had working working in different places, whether it's putting together and leading initiatives that are going to the um, that are going to different Senate offices or working on campaigns that can help get more funding or help influence lobbyists to do what we consider to be the right thing on behalf of students. It was, I think it was transformative in that way. And although a lot of people probably wouldn't see the connection on paper, a lot of the lessons I learned there helped influence a lot of the things that I'm doing now with Trapital, whether it's how to communicate a message clearly, both written and using your voice to sell and convince to give an opinion to somebody. When you're working for a big company, and even if you're making a heavy salary, you have to go up pretty high in order to be held to that level of work and that level of expectation. And I think being you know thrown into the wolves to some extent and people not in these words, but pretty much saying, okay, yes, I know that you may be this young person that has this degree and has this pedigree of, of the, the work that says you should do this on paper, but you are not ready to do what we need you to do right now. And we need you to get to that point as soon as possible. And that helped shape me in a lot of ways. And I think just being exposed to that type of environment is what then gave me not only the confidence, but the ability to understand what I need to do as I moved on elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So I think for that, I'm fortunate of it. And I'm also glad that we're able to make a difference. Uh, it was just announced recently that now 99% of uh, public K-12 schools across the country now have the minimum sufficient broadband that they need for digital learning. Mm -hmm. and, and that's awesome. Mm -hmm. There's still a, a lot of work that needs to be done. Like that 1% that's left is no joke. It's some of the hardest places to reach in the country, but being able to be part of that and have a hand is something that I'm definitely grateful for. And this year, 2020 is, the year that they're checking the box with that and then being able to help look in the mirror and or not look in the mirror, look in the reflection to see what's happened. I think it, it's definitely some remarkable stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and you, and you know, you come off as definitely a person that um, is like well-researched, like a thoughtful and methodical, like talk about the process for you to go from a full-time job to like quitting. Mm-hmm and starting this like what was that did you were you thinking like, i had to reach a certain amount of savings or like how did you think about all right. that it, it was a few things i wanted to make sure that things were good from a financial perspective i wanted to make sure that things were good from like a security perspective because my wife and i were still newlyweds and we're trying to um think about what the future looks like in this expensive city of san francisco so i wanted to make sure that if things didn't work out, we weren't jeopardizing our future long-term in any type of way. But I knew that there were a few things. One, I felt like I got things good to from a financial perspective. Like pretty much when we moved here, I was able to, or both of us were able to budget our lives based on the salaries that we initially had mm -hmm. and pretty much kept that. So any of the bonuses and pay raises we got were just like cake on top. Mm -hmm. So being able to save that, even in the back of my mind, if it wasn't to go save up and go start something, it was like, save this because you never know what may happen that you may want to be able to tap into. So from the financial perspective, it was good. But then also I knew that this business needed to hit some milestones itself. I knew that there were, there's a few things. One, there's this aspect of momentum and you want to be able to capture that and lean into that. And I think if you wait too long, then that could be a bit of a challenge. So I knew that there was momentum. I knew that it wasn't just growth, but it was the right type of growth that I was getting. Like names that 
we had heard name dropped in rap songs or people that had power that were always on these billboard 100 people that are the most powerful. Those are the type of people that were starting to join the email list for Trapital, getting, reading and sharing my stuff and, you know, in private messages saying, hey, this is great. Keep this up. And those are the type of things almost more than just the volume of people that convince, hey, this is good. And I think this can go even further if I'm doing more effort on it than nights mm -hmm. and weekends. Mm -hmm. So once I had that, once I had the financial security to at least cover a year of my living expenses, I said, no, this is the right time. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that was the thought behind it. And yeah, so I made that decision a little over a year ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that takes discipline. Yeah, it was, it was tough because I mean, I don't necessarily think that either uh, my wife or I live extravagant lifestyles, but we also want to be able to go out to dinner on a weekend and not feel like, oh, you know, maybe we can't do this. And knowing that the two, she was also in school during a lot of this time as well. So I knew that us being able to go on like the big vacation that we did or some of that stuff wasn't going to necessarily happen. So I think a lot of that made it easier to be like, no, well, let's do it now. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's one of those, um, one of those important factors too, I think, in a lot of relationships about uh, knowing whether your partner is a, a, like a producer or a consumer mm -hmm. or like a saver or a spender. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of strife can be created if you guys aren't aligned around. Right, right. Like how, how you think about money, how you go about money. Because I'm thinking like for you both to um, be diligent and and uh, saving a year's worth of living expenses in San Francisco, mm -hmm. you know, that's like, that's impressive. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, just like, I mean, cause the city is expensive. Right. And you, you also have to think about like, oh, how, how much are we spending on food per week? Like, right, you know, right. so you really got to be aligned on the same page and so much of spending is impulsive, mm -hmm. you know, like, um, oh, sell, oh, I feel bad. Oh, like right. I'm hungry right now, you know? So, mm -hmm. so I just, I just want to, um, I, 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 I can't let that go without talking about how impressive that is. Yeah. No, know? thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Appreciate that. So um, good job. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think like being able to do that with I think with like with, with any pursuit, the ability to be focused and disciplined is what sets uh, companies apart. Mm -hmm. Like all of these things have a certain amount of activities and if um and if you are in a mind space where you're used to committing Right, right, because like that's, I think that's the difference maker in, mm -hmm. between so many people. Right, uh, so I feel like you're gonna win. Mm. You know, no, thank you, man. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah, because I do think that as anyone in my role has to do, you have to you have to know when you make pivots, know when to do things, and accept the fact that you are going to make mistakes and you are going to have lessons learned. I already have many of those in this past year, but I also know that the timing of that made sense in a way where it's allowed me to be able to level up, meet the mentors or meet the people to help get things in the right place. So I'm definitely excited about what's ahead. I still have a long way to go to be able to reach my goals of what I think things can be. But no, I'm glad it gets recognized and, and I'm I'm definitely, you know, bullish on this opportunity. It's one of the big reasons I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. So um what what are some of the ways you feel like you've made mistakes or lost or setbacks since you started? Um I one of the biggest is I have focused more on the product itself over the distribution mm. of it. And by that I mean I've wanted to make sure that both the quality and the message of the content itself was as great as it can be, because I knew that I'm coming at this industry from someone that, as I mentioned before, doesn't necessarily have the, um, I don't want to say credentials, but doesn't necessarily have the rubber stamp of, oh, this is, you know, Jay-Z's guy, or mm -hmm. this is mm -hmm. Russell, R Russell Simmons guy, mm -hmm. like, being able to come in as the outsider and having the quality of the pieces, what extends through, because knowing that 
even if I'm tackling a subject, it still needs to come in that type of way. So wanting to maintain that takes time and it takes rigor myself. But with that, there's only so much time in the day. So how can I find ways to both extend the message of this content that you spend many hours creating? And I think that's where the distribution and the marketing comes from that. And I think that things have definitely grown in a way I'm happy about, but had I sacrificed one for the other, logic would say that, yes, things may be bigger, but with that said, wouldn't necessarily be the quality of people that you want. So I think that's an age old balance and it's still one that I continue to have challenges with. But I think that some of the things that I'm exploring now, such as, um, being able to contract and being able to just make things easy and knowing that um, it's one of the things I know we've talked about, like Gary Vee and Grant Cardone and people like that in the past, like Gary Vee's one of the people that's like, your Instagram feed does not need to look like an art collection. Mm. Just put the stuff out. Mm. And I think that itself reinforces a lot of what this is, because I think he is definitely a distribution over product type person, which is Mm. why he's been able to be as successful as what what he's done. And I don't necessarily think of myself of what I'm doing necessarily the way that Gary V does, but that logic I think makes uh, a lot of sense. And the more that I can leverage and use that, I think the the better off it can be for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and it's definitely come off to like you know that um like you're you're building the name Trapital, right? And like people these like media personalities, social media personalities. Um, like they're the celebrity and you kind of know what they do and you kind of mm-hmm. don't like Gary Vee, yeah. like we know his name and he has media this and all of that. But like, you've really tried to elevate the, uh, the name of Trapital, you right. know, and you've had some interesting guests on your podcast. Everyone mm-hmm. should listen to the Trapital podcast. You should subscribe to the newsletter at Trapital.com. Thank you. <laughs> Trapital.co, Trapital.co. That's what I meant. To say. <laughs> and I saw that you had, um, uh matthew knows yeah as the first guest mm-hmm. that's, yeah that's a heavy hit no thank you to come out thank number you. one yeah yeah <laughs> yeah came out came out strong with that one it was, it was funny how that one came in i guess in a lot of ways it reinforces much of this because matthew knows is is uh matthew knows is beyonce and solange's father he was also the manager of destiny's child back in the day and was beyonce's manager as a solo artist for a number of years and still is a music executive Mm -hmm. today Mm -hmm. and he one of his one of the readers of trapital who was um an industry veteran herself had reached out and was like hey dan really like what you're doing and saw that I wrote an article about Beyonce and her streaming strategy about why she put her homecoming documentary on Netflix instead of title. That was a pretty popular article. And she said, Hey, would you ever want to interview Matthew? And I said, yes, I'd love to. I'm actually planning a podcast right now. We can situate this. And, um, it took a couple of weeks just to get things situated, but he was down and that in a lot of ways, helped spark and push things with the podcast because frankly i probably would have waited until things were a little bit like i don't want to say perfect but like okay we have everything set here are like the five guests we're going to roll this out with it's going to be boom 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 Mm -hmm. but i do think that sometimes you have to be willing to take the opportunities you have when they come Mm -hmm. and not necessarily wait for the perfect landing to happen and understand that if you're trying to build things scrappy from the ground up, sometimes you got to just take the opportunities. So in many ways, that opportunity accelerated everything else that I plan to do with Mm -hmm. the podcast. And yes, since then it's been able to expand quite a bit. The Matthew Dole's one is still one of the most listened to Mm -hmm. episodes of the podcast was able to have Steve Stout, who is a, a longtime music executive, executive and now leads a music distribution service and an ad agency, had the president of SoundCloud, Mike Wiseman, had um, Ilana Lewis, who leads another distribution service called STEM, um, had Shay Serrano, who is a, a staff writer for The Ringer and an author of several books about hip hop and rap culture itself. So I'm excited. I think, you know, similar to you, been able to have a interesting suite of guests. And I do think that the focus of Trapital helps um, attract guests. But now that you're able to have names and I'm 
I'm, although I feel like I'm definitely one that tries to focus on, you know, quality of conversation more than the name, but I'm also not immune to the fact that names help attract people that you want to do that. So it's this reinforcement thing. So I feel like I have a few of those now that can make those conversations a little bit easier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I, I, I loved how, you know, over the course of you building Trapital and me like experimenting with Cook on Monday morning, we've been able to trade notes and yeah. uh, books that we've, that have inspired us and like methods that we've enjoyed. You know, mm-hmm. I think that, um, and I and I really want to see you, uh, you know, be like one of the main voices in media on this topic and like the trusted source that uh, people aspire to get covered in, mm-hmm. you know? I think that um I think that you know your work ethic and what you're aspiring to do and you know what it means for you to be uh, a black man building a media company covering a black art form you mm-hmm. know is really is really important so yeah. so um keep pushing bro Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's definitely, and I mean, I, I'm, I've definitely admired all the steps and multiple jobs you've had yourself, both with Mission Bit and with the school board and now your own um, media pursuits. So I know you can relate to a lot of that. So no, it, it's good to have other people that are like, you know, thinking from a similar uh, perspective, but like you said, can share ideas. Like I said, you were the one that had uh, put me on to Grant and a few of the others and some of the books they've read. So mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah, no, nah, yeah. And, the, um, you know, like oh, on Monday morning, I really want to highlight people that have built things, are building things. And mm-hmm. so many of us talk about um, wanting to build something. Right. And, you know, it kind of happens to a lot to people too around like this late 20s, mid 30s age, like Mm -hmm. you're working in corporate America, like, you know, you're dissatisfied by how things are going, you have all these ideas and most people never strike out. Mm -hmm. And there's not really a a formula for how to strike out. I guess there's a lot of information on like what people have done, Mm -hmm. but uh, you know, elevating people that are doing it, I think is inspires people to go out and do it themselves too. Right. Um, so, you know, I always end the podcast talking about leadership and legacy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, starting your own company, trying to bring in other vendors, trying to make it, try to like make your way through the industry. But do you have any guiding principles when it comes to leadership? Yeah. Um, I think that, a strong leader needs to be both bold and and um, empathetic as well. I think those are the two words I use: bold and empathetic. Bold because I do think that you have to be strong in your principles. You have to believe this in what you're doing, and even in the moments of doubt or in the frustrating parts you have deep down, you have to be able to go back to saying like, "Yes." this is why I'm doing this. This makes sense and have a grounded aspect of this because yeah, I've definitely had tough points this year. I've been like, oh man, like this isn't quite where I wanted it to be. Like, was this the right way that I should have went about this? And trying myself to not let those moments get too deep because then you don't want to get down that rabbit hole of just being like frustrated and it throws your your day off. So being bold in that and knowing that you have that conviction to be like, yes, this is what I believe in. And it's almost to the point where uh, if you're someone that has a media presence, you want to get to the point where people feel like, all right, enough already. We get it. Like I know people may say that a bit tongue in cheek, but those are the people that believe in their calling cards and their stamps of what they're saying, whether it is a someone like a Chance the Rapper or Russ talking about why it's important to be an independent artist or some of the venture capitalists that are out there telling people to like, no, don't do a regular VC deal, like, you know, keep equity and all this. Like there's nuance that I think gets lost with that, but having the boldness, I think makes a difference. And I think the empathy as well makes a big difference because even though you have to be bold, I do think you have to be willing to listen. And some people may question like, okay, well, I'm essentially doing a majority solo thing. Where does the empathy come from? And what I would let them know is that you have to be willing to listen, even though you feel strong about your ideas. Like I may be talking with someone and 
That doesn't mean you necessarily just go agree with what the person says, but you at least need to hear it, ingest it, and then decide because you never know when a really um, smart idea can come. Like, ironically, one of the ideas that I had this past year came from someone that I wasn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily think was that, um, uh, I'm probably saying too much for someone I wasn't necessarily the fondest of, but I was like, you know what? That's a legitimate idea. I ended up using that to incorporate because you never know where this can come from. So I think being both empathetic and accepting that you don't know everything, but you have to have some conviction mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. belief in what you're saying though, mm -hmm. to make things happen. Yeah. 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 And so, um, legacy. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I called, I named my company after my Great grandfather Luther Harris is called the Luther Harris Holding Company. Mm -hmm. He moved to San Francisco, the Bay Area, um, in 1947, at a time when it was hard for Black people to do much of anything in the country. He bought homes for him and all of his children. Yeah, and um, started a sawmill. Had a sixth grade education. Mm -hmm. uh, his legacy is important to me. This is a dictionary. Yeah, and these are my great grandmother's chairs. Mm. Um, and you know. When I think about my legacy, like his legacy inspires me. How do you think about legacy? How do you think about your legacy? Yeah, I think about it um, a few different ways. I think I I look at my parents and I think that one of the things that sticks out to me about them and how they relate to people is that there was always cornerstones of communities or like cornerstones of the home. It's always been important that my mom has always wanted a place where people could come back to, whether there was something challenging going on or they go through their ups and downs. She wanted to be able to be that home because she understood the value of that growing up. And I think she definitely wanted to be able to create that because that's what it was like for her in Jamaica. And I think similarly with my dad. And I even look at you know, when my mom first moved here, she had lived with one of our family friends who was a hairdresser in Hartford. And many people had tried to push her like, oh, you know, you're doing so well with this hairdressing. Like, why don't you go move up somewhere else where you can not be um, in on this street called Albany Avenue in Hartford, which is known as being one of the poorest districts and one of the least safe neighborhoods in the entire state. And she was like, no, I'm not moving these are my people. This is my community. So even if I'm bringing in, you know, seven plus figures a year, this is where I'm going to stay. And I try to think about myself in that same way, because I think my wife and I enjoy a lot of aspects about San Francisco, but I know the thought is that, okay, even if you get some money moving to one of the more affluent neighborhoods in the city or moving outside of the city where you could have this big view, this expansive house. And I think both of us feel a little bit rooted in that same way of being like, no, like we want to be somewhere where we feel like we can have an impact and make an impact. And I think I would like to be able to do something like that and make sure that, you know, my family and extended family can have somewhere like that, that shows a bit of realness and a bit more of who we are as opposed to like, oh, we were these people, but then we got some money and then just went over to this spot. So doing that. And then I think from a company perspective, if something like Trapital can be both the backbone of that, then I think that would be fantastic because then it could do that. And then if it's in a position to do that, then something like Trapital then could at least make its way so that other people can continue to be inspired by seeing that I was able to build a successful company that is has elevated the business of hip hop or elevating something that is related to black culture, they can then do that. Other publications can then copy and follow suit and see the benefits of that. Some of them are already doing this to some extent, even before I was here. So I don't want to pull a Drake and act like, oh, I'm the first person that did this. But if the emergence of someone like me as the independent can continue to accelerate what is already happening, then I think from a business perspective, that'll make me feel gratified in that mm -hmm. way. Right on. Oh, thanks, man. Thank you, Dan. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you on. Yeah, yeah. no, this was fun. No. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> Likewise, I'm looking forward to listening to it again. And sharing it out. Yeah. Peace, peace, and thank you for listening to another episode of Cook Home Monday Morning. I'd like to thank Dan Runcy for talking about his journey starting Capital Trapital. <laughs> it was really great to, uh, you know, hear just about how methodically he thought about the business. The, the niche he wanted to go into 
and you know the type of reporting he wanted to do in his journey to get there i really appreciate him for sharing his story for spending time with us this morning and for the you know inspiration that he offers about striking out and building something and having your own voice i think that's really beautiful and uh, hopefully you all will decide to support trapital uh, you can check it out at trapital.co i also like to thank the people that made this podcast possible i'd like to thank my videographer and producer david topete i'd like to thank uh, fernando and cinco marquez for the editing that he does for the newsletter i appreciate you brother thank you i also like to thank all the people that have been sharing and subscribing to the podcast we have been on this journey to get to 2020 subscribers by april 30th of 2020 we're going to do that because of the community that we are building together because we believe in what we're doing here we believe that if you own monday morning you can own the week if you own the week you can own the year and if you change your year you can change your life i also just like to say uh, a thank you to all the people that make San Francisco, the beautiful, incredible city that it is. I'd like to thank our meeting drivers, our teachers, our school lunch workers, our people that do custodial services, you know, the people that keep our streets safe, our first responders, the people that keep our streets clean, and the unsung heroes that are out on our streets supporting people and trying to improve lives on a daily basis. Thank you for your commitment to our community and for making San Francisco the beautiful, incredible city that we all enjoy. Uh, I also like to extend a special thank you and appreciation to everybody in every city that we built a community with, with Cook on Monday Morning, and the cities that we want to continue to build a community with, uh, cities like Oakland, Los Angeles, Houston, Dallas, New Orleans, Jackson, Norfolk, Chicago, Detroit, uh, Philadelphia, New York City, Miami, everybody everywhere that uh, believes in this message of changing your Monday morning. Thank you all for the work that you're doing. I want to hear more about the work that you're doing. Um, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Stephon Cook. You can send me an email, uh, info at stephoncook.com. And let's keep moving. Peace, peace, and we out. <laughs>